Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. I'm still tidying up after the successful Grogmeat 19 where I picked up some new games. Pendragon, I had a new Eberron supplement for D&D 5th edition and I've got Gamma World to add to the great library of RPGs and my Grognard files. Whenever I mention Grogmeat to my work colleagues, they ask, do you dress up? No, 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 the same answer I gave last time. I'll write it down if it helps. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll uh, just give her a tap. Ah, the eternal champion appears as Naomi, pursuing James Bond in a helicopter. She's a killer, an assassin. I've got assassination on my mind as I've been reading Killer, a game of assassination, a live role-playing game for any number of players, first published in 1981 by Steve Jackson Games, and it's still available today from their website. There's nothing like the thrill that you get from wiping out a friend, according to Shelley Berman. Killer is a game that takes the competitive edge of snakes and ladders and moves it up a notch. A live-action game where you're pitted against your friends to score kills with dart guns, confetti grenades and balloon bombs. For younger listeners, think of it as a a live-action Fortnite where the only skins that matter are banana skins. It was a huge hit on college campuses Here's Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. We accidentally ran a game on the day that the British ambassador was visiting our university in Ireland. An international incident was avoided only by a barman, throwing himself between the players and the plainclothes protective detail and shouting, Don't shoot, fucking idiots! Steve Dempsey says, At university, I put a paper bag with eye holes on my head glasses on the outside and stalked through the canteen at lunchtime and stabbed my girlfriend with a cardboard knife. Neil Hopkins, we had a fantastic campaign of killer when I was in sixth form. Assassinations included poisonous spiders in motorbike helmets and electrified door handles and good old-fashioned banana guns. If you tried anything like that now, you'd end up with a SWAT team on your doorstep. And it was true back then too. Here's Knock Harper. Some old university mates of mine were arrested playing killer in Manchester in the mid-90s. I think that's officially losing. Meanwhile, back in the Golden State in the US of A, Ipolexic says, Killer is basically how I actually met my core friends. I just moved back to California after 11 years of living in the Deep South for 7th grade. A friend took me up to meet his friends on the UC Berkeley campus. Most of us had tracer guns, which flung out little discs. 
but two had these little handheld pistols that shot hollow rubber bullets. We called those guns remote dildo applicators, which to the 13-year-old me, I found it hilarious. Anyway, the killer game mostly consisted of running around the halls of the various UCB buildings and shooting each other, until inevitably an irate grad student would start yelling at us or a security card would appear, at which point we'd scatter. This group then introduced me to RPGs beyond D&D, Car Wars, Villains and Vigilantes, Champions, Rollmaster, Call of Cthulhu, Twilight 2000 were our games over the next five years, then later RuneQuest. They're still my best friends to this day. As it says in the book, essentially, Killer is a game of cowboys and Indians for adults. In this episode, I interview Jamie Thompson, who was the features editor of White Dwarf during its golden age between 1981 and 1984. He's the creator of the game books Talisman of Death and The Way of the Tiger series, and more recently, Can You Brexit? He looks back here as he reflects on the recent project he's been working on, The Dice Men, Games Workshop 1975-1985, and provides some anecdotes from the era. It was during the interview that he mentioned playing Killer a couple of times, that was reminded of live-action role-playing and was in the mood for reminiscing myself. Regular listeners will know that this podcast was originally conceived as a memoir of our experiences of role-playing in the 1980s. In this episode, we'll lead you down a particular path of memory lane as Blythe and I have reached a significant milestone of our friendship. We reflect on our experiences of live-action role-playing in two parts, with our first, last and everything guest stuck in the middle. Shannon Ferguson, also known as the Angry Monk, was one of the first overseas listeners to correspond with us. He gives us a Canadian view of the first game he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. I'll be back at the end to bring you up to date with the current Grog Squad projects. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. I'm in the room of role-playing rambling with White Dwarf editor, fighting fantasy game book designer, children's author, and all-round creative genius. I've got Jamie Thompson with me. Hello, Jamie. And greatest living human on Earth. (laughs) Actually, technically, I may not be human. Greatest evil overlord. Well, it's great, great to... Have you in the uh, in the room of role playing rambling, and we always start by asking, "How did you get into role playing?" Well, I left uni in 1981 or something, and I uh, I remember opening my first Dungeons and Dragons box of three little books in a white container in about 1976 when I was about 15, and it completely changed my life back then people kind of forget how utterly new the whole thing was and how no one had ever done any role playing like that it was kind of like wargaming with another another level so i got into dungeon and dragons and was doing that for years and became an ultimate 70s nerd and then i was stuck at home looking for a job spending most of my time painting a large macedonian army 
<laughs> what they called minifigs in those days. And my mum got fed up with me being around the house at 20. What's it? I was applying for all these jobs and not getting very far. And she found one of my magazines, White Dwarf, that I read as a fan. And in the back, there was an advert for an editor at White Dwarf. Why don't you apply for this? And I said, don't be ridiculous, mother. I know better than you could possibly know at my grand age of 22. There's no way I could just apply for my best job I could ever imagine possibly having in Games Workshop with no experience fresh out of uni. So my mum still sickened by the smell of turpentine and paints in the, in the house. She rang up Ian Livingstone and she said to him, my son is a total nutter nerd. He'd be great working for you. And they got on really well and they had a long chat. And my mum says to me, I've got you an interview. Go up there and see the guy. I go, Mum, how could you do this? How embarrassing. So I go up and have an interview with Ian, and I get on really well with Ian, and I get the job. It was a features editor on White Dwarf, and that was the start. And then about 30 years later, Ian was in Brighton where my mum lives, and he he came round and visited my mum. Is that the first time you got met? Oh, that's that's great. So my mum got me my first job, (laughs) and that started my whole career off. So so would that be um, at Delling Road that you... No, it was just after. they just moved to Sunbeam Road, which was the big warehouse. And I had a large sort of office with no windows. And it was kind of like being in a little dungeon, which was sort of appropriate. for. But it was like a dream job. You know, I I spent all day reading Dwight Dwarf scenario material and open box, the review thing. And is that why you call it? this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just so much fun. And it was such a fun place to work in those days. Of course, we got up to no good, but there were endless games of killer in the office. <laughs> yeah, someone had written "baboom" on the bottom of the phone, and ah, got you. <laughs> yeah, so that was a lot of fun, and uh, I worked there for many years—not many years, for about four or five years—before leaving to do game books. So I came in when the growth had become quite exponential and it nearly broke the company a couple of times but then i left just before the whole move to nottingham which was a huge change in the nature of games workshop which is all covered in the book i've been writing which i've sort of finished games workshop the early years so it's a history of of games workshop which i've kind of finished my draft and now Ian and steve are sort of going through editing it yeah this is this is the one that you've done through a crowdfunding isn't it the unbound uh, yes, through Unbound, yeah, everyone pre... It's like a Kickstarter, basically, for books. But they do a bit more than Kickstarter. They put an editor on it and they publish it. So when, when's that expected to be published? Well, I don't know. It's, it all depends. You know, These things take so long once you've finished the manuscript and they usually go through several edits and before it actually reaches, gets printed and sent it off to wherever it will go to be printed. and then. So I would imagine sometime next year. There's a lot of work involved because there's a lot of pictures photos being put in yeah and there's old photos from the 70s and 80s oh that's good that's good so what's been the process of that then what what have you had to do to well i sort of sat down with ian and steve for a few sessions and they just talked and they just reminisced and i wrote it down and tried to construct a sort of narrative structure of events but i remember some amazing things like uh, when they started it was just the two of them in a flat and they and they were renting the flat and doing mail order from it um in the 70s and there was only one phone in those days it wasn't like where, how it is now and that was a payphone in the hallway and everyone else in the house including the landlord kept complaining because it kept ringing <laughs> people would ring up and they go oh yeah someone wants another dungeon D sets the guys upstairs and then people would turn up dressed as wizards <laughs> thinking it was a shop looking for uh, stuff 
Raoul Park and figurines and the Traveller and all the rest of it. And so they had to move and they managed to get a, a, a tiny space at the back of a estate agents, which was in Uxbridge Road. And I think it was there, or was it Downing Road? I can't remember which one. People, again, people get turning up that were dressed as wizards and there was time, they had to, when anyone turned up, they had to leave the space because there wasn't room for the three of them. They had their first employee, Trevor Graver, back then. And they'd have to leave the room for them to browse the stock that was stacked in the back house of the back empty room sort of thing at the back of an estate agent. But again, with all these wizards turning up, (laughs) (laughs) hobbits and the rest of it, the estate agent decided they didn't like having them at the back because it wasn't good for people turning up in Uxbridge Road in London to buy a flash flat, having some bloke with a staff and long hippie hair clutching invincible city-state, city-state of the invincible overlord or whatever it was (laughs) in those days. And so they found them a place, and they were. So that was number one, Downing Road, the first uh, um, Games Workshop shop. And they couldn't afford to rent a flat and the and the shop, so they lived in their van for about three months. And now there are like a hundred and something forty shops all over the world, and it's worth two billion and all that. And that's the story of Ian Livingston living in a van and Steve Jackson living in a van, coming to where it is today. Of course, Ian and Steve got out of it, sold out. Well, it was like an internal buyout from Citadel in the 80s but still it's an incredible story it's hobbyists isn't it uh turning yeah. and becoming yeah. entrepreneurs yeah and then it flexed and everything Ian was saying that uh, part of the what he's looking forward to is actually Danny writing because he's often asked to relate the stories of the early years. And I suppose it's an opportunity yeah. as well to do a bit of um, reminiscing and also myth busting. Because I, I do, I believe that Steve Jackson is credited with coining the term role playing game when he was doing a review of On Guard in Owlum the Weasel. That's quite believable because he did a lot of the. Um the marketing writing and the early workshop stuff. And I remember when I was a kid, what got me into buying D&D in the white box set was some pamphlet I found, I can't remember where, written by Steve. And it was just like the story of an adventure one night. You know, it's like you had the DM saying, you, you've, there's a, door, a corridor going to the left and a door on the right would do it. And uh, it was so exciting then. He was very good at that sort of thing, Steve. And they always said how Ian was the reckless maverick guy and Steve was the, the sensible one, sort of. And that, that worked really well for the pair of them. And they're still very close friends, even now, after all these years. So uh, that I hadn't, didn't know that in 1976, whatever it was, I bought that off of Games Workshop. And then I would eventually become working for them. And my mum would get me the job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got a similar story that uh, I got into... Um role-playing through an article that uh, Steve wrote for Starburst magazine. Um, so I joined The Hobbit just as you were uh, editing. Uh, I might have a copy of that article. Yeah. I won't look it up now, but I've got a whole you know, folder full of little scans of white dwarf flyers, and it's wonderful to look at all the memories of adverts in the back of white dwarf of Raoul Path of figurines and Conan-like figures on the back of little horses and all these figures that you used to play with the D&D stuff. Traveller and RuneQuest. And have uh, Ian and Steve kept an archive of all that material? Yes, there's loads of it. There's loads of scans, photos, massive amounts, uh, which they're going to put into the book. They haven't got everything, of course, but going to Ian's house is where we meet to discuss things. things. He's got, like, uh, rooms full of, like, giant Lara Croft (laughs) statues, but also board game after board game and posters of the first ever White Dwarf magazine and it's just a treasure trove of, of gaming history. It's wonderful. 
It also reminds me of one of the stories, which is sort of slightly embellished for anecdotal reasons, but it's so much fun I have to tell it, is that Ian and Steve are um, in their flat in Uxbridge Road, and um, the payphone rings in the hall, and they go down, and it's Gary Gygax. And somehow he's got, from the owl and weasel, which they're talking about in those days, was a very important method of marketing, because you didn't have internet, you didn't have email, TV adverts were too much, so it's literally handing out pamphlets to people or getting a subscribers list. And so Gary had got that and he'd rung them and he wanted to sell, was talking about doing a D&D deal. And um, both sides were kind of convinced the other of one thing or another. So Gary thought they were a top European distributor. <laughs> <laughs> and Ian and Steve were thinking, oh my God, this is, uh, they weren't quite sure what Dungeons and Dragons was, but they thought it was like a big successful game in America and they hadn't really seen it yet. And um, they ordered six copies and Gary sent them over. And they thought he was like a top American gaming company. And he thought they were the greatest European. And they were in a hall, rented hallway on a payphone. And he was in his bedroom selling <laughs> them his last six copies. <laughs> and years later, they meet up and they both go. They were both role playing at being businessmen at the time. But of course, when they got D&D and the exclusive distribution, it changed everything in, for both parties in, uh, in the UK. That's just a lovely story. <laughs> yeah. I've got. I've, I've spoken to some of the people myself uh, who are down in road. So, like uh, Tim Olson, who is uh, one of the yeah. people working there, and yeah. it sounds like it was uh, almost like a, a cottage industry with a big club of uh, friends around it. Who yes, do- it became very much like that. One of the things that Ian and Steve were able to do was pay people not very much in those days because everyone loved working there. And one of Tim's anecdotes that. I don't know whether they, I've just collected them all and Ian and Steve decide which ones go in. And there's a limited amount of space, but also I no doubt they'll edit it for them, make them sound better. The one story is, I can't remember who it was, was it was one guy who's working there. I don't, I don't think I ever met him, but he was dressed in Frogman mask and he had a plastic bomb or something. And he's shouting through the doorway of the shop at his other workmate working behind the, the counter. They were playing killer. Who's talking about I'm going to kill you! I'm going to kill you! You swearing at this policeman just walking by. Comes <laughs> in, uh, the guy almost arrested. Thinks there's like a real murder attempt coming on. This kind of frogmater. <laughs> it was almost like um, they had to ban killer in the end because it was taking up too much time in the office, causing <laughs> safety problems. Like people had wired up string to electrical sockets and pretending they were wires so that you. Trip over and everything. So, so yes, a, me- a memo had to go around say uh, no more killer. <laughs> and we would of course meet afterwards and play games of apocalypse or D and D or board games and that. There was a tabletop football and a. It was kind of like Google in the eighties, seventies, and eighties before anyone thought of it. So there was a tabletop football machine, a um, table tennis. It was a very relaxing place to be. Sort of spaces that you could go and hang out and just talk about creative stuff. I get the feeling as well that there was a lot of uh, talent spotting going on because um, obviously at that time people were making their own stuff uh, so fanzines were emerging um, and particularly uh, Dragon Lords and I know that um, uh, you worked with Ian and Mark didn't you for a number of years? Yes I shared in my office with them which was very annoying <laughs> Mark Gascoigne kept insisting on playing a throbbing gristle and <laughs> punk band from the 70s art of noise god Actually, i didn't mind art of noise but, and um yeah so that was uh and then ian marsh i hired him as my assistant and he he took over 
have ever wanted Wolf. I remember Mark Gascoigne was working on, I think it was Judge Dredd, the role-playing game. Yeah, kind of out of Games Workshop came so much stuff later, from, you know, especially game books. And Mark's now uh, got his own little publishing company. Ian Marsh is on the Isle of Wight, I think, with his wife and children. And every now and again, we sort of go to these fighting fantasy fests and people meet up that I haven't seen for years. And there are others that we're still in touch with over time. Mm. It's also sad that many of the old, nearly all of the early game book authors came out of Games Workshop and poor old Joe Diva yeah. died. And Albie Foray Albie Foray. Albie, yes. Yeah, he was like my uh, line manager back in the day and he uh, really taught me a lot about editing and um, how to be concise with your words. And he really knew his stuff. Taught me a lot. Terrible shame. Six. I will, of course, live forever by eating the hearts of babies. <laughs> <laughs> sell them. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Do I eat their hearts away from the grass so I can sell them a book? <laughs> <laughs> I have to leave some of them alive. Yes. You've got to have an audience somehow. What, what role-playing games did you uh, have on a, a play, were you playing regularly around that time? In, in those days, it was uh, D&D and RuneQuest, particularly. Dave Morris and I used to play a lot of RuneQuest. And uh, then EPT, Emperor of the Petal Throne. And that became my the primary game I've played for 30 years or so now. D&D, I never... It was too eclectic and too much of a chucked-in-everything from orcs to, I don't know, only from Japan. It didn't feel like it had a, a consistency of its law. You know what I mean? It was all yeah. general fantasy thrown together, sub Tolkien stuff. Whereas EPT Emperor of the Petal Throne was totally original and very different, and it took a lot of getting into. But once you got into it, it felt like I you know, had all languages written for all the different um, creatures, and they were all sort of fitted in with the whole sense of what the world is about. It wasn't just like Greek mythology mixed up with Norse mythology or any, any of that kind of thing. And also uh, a little bit of traveller, but I got into a bit of trouble for that because when you applied for the job on White Dwarf, you had to be a master of RuneQuest D&D and Traveller. I'd never played Traveller, but I simply claimed in the interview that I had. And later they found out that I'd been lying. And Steve coined the term for me, Jammy Dodger, which is a, <laughs> you remember Jammy? Yeah. I became known for a while, Jammy Dodger. And then other rather more unfortunate names, we perhaps, supercase we perhaps should not mention. <laughs> <laughs> But I soon got into my traveller. Yeah, I know that uh, a lot of people who um, early in the hobby either went down the path of uh, Glorantha or Tekumen. Um, no. is, right. is it the world-building aspect of it that uh, particularly appeals to you? Yeah, I think it does. I think you want to. I like to role-play characters properly. So I guess it sounds a bit, you know, myself, but nevertheless, that's what I enjoy. So I need to have a fully rounded, believable world that you can immerse yourself in. And that immersion is very important. So it needs to be consistent and make sense within its own terms. That was one of the great things about the Glorantham universe. It was all fitted in with itself, and especially that's true of Tecuma. That's why I didn't like d and I didn't like the system of D&D up much either. It was too bit weird when you think about it. Of uh, course, I don't really know what it's like now because I don't really play the 6th or 7th edition or whatever it is. But back in those days, you know, the armour class, it was all... RuneQuest was much more mathematically made more sense, rule-wise. But also, it, it the whole thing, both EPT, both Tecumel and Garantha were consistent worlds that just worked and you could lose yourself in them. So I, over the years, I've played all sorts of different characters and the different possibilities that you can have. 
temples and religions and tribes. Whereas D&D didn't have that sense. It didn't feel like we were in a place. It would, Except for one campaign, but that was created, the whole world background was created by the my writing partner, Mark Min Smith, the world of Orb, and that just happened to be D&D. But again, that was wonderful because it was, the gods weren't just a mishmash of this and that from different mythologies. It was all consistent and something that you could feel you were really a part of. So you mentioned Mark, Mark, uh, Mark Smithy. Uh, he's uh, collaborated with you. Uh, so, so was he um, a member of your group? Yes. So I went to school with Min and I sort of got them all into D&D, my old friends who were into it. And he then created the world of Orb and that was the campaign that we played in. And we used that world for the talisman of death and um, <laughs> way of the tiger. And um, one of the things that I believe gave way of the tiger and edge was, of course, my wonderful system of ninja ninjutsu and my genius writing. Uh, I suppose I have to admit that Min contributed something that we generally wrote each book, half each, and he created the whole world. But one of the things that made that world feel, and it's often been commented on by people who talk to me late in the later years about how they enjoyed Way of the Tiger, was the sense that the world was real and consistent. And it wasn't just that it was going on in the background. And we were able to do that by having the main character turn up in a city set. And an event occurs in the background as you're passing by. Was usually, and also all the characters, a lot of the characters in the world that you meet were based on real characters in the in the campaign. So they were all properly rounded characters that had been developed over years, year-long campaign arcs. And we used all of that stuff happening. So something that had happened in a campaign I hadn't been playing in, for instance, with a different group of friends that Min had been running it for, would have would have done something in that in their game that we then put into the book. So a temple of such and such is burning in the background and people run out screaming. And that's a real event. And it made the reader feel like there was a real world going on with or without him and that or her. And then they would play their their story. But other people's stories were happening. And that really gave it a sense of a real world they were adventuring in rather than um, you know, just a, a, a random forest with an evil guy sort of thing. Yeah, so I, I think that was quite important in its success. And uh, speaking of now, do, do you continue to game? Is it is it still something that you do? Yeah, yeah, we're, um, we've just been playing in Dave Morris's Dragon Warriors world because he's working on a new rule system because he feels he wants to be out of date, calling a dual spider. So having a lot of fun with that. It's sort of. Have you played Dragon Warriors? Yes, I have. Yeah. So it's a sort of alternate medieval one. I've got. I've still got my uh, paperbacks uh, on my bookshelf up here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm playing at the moment an evil peasant archer. <laughs> and is that a regular uh, group that you've got? Yes. Um, we did a, a kind of another chap called Oliver Johnson, who you might know. Oh, yes. From. Yeah. He ran a campaign which was sort of a bit like uh, Westworld. Uh, and so, but it was GURPS, so we did a long um, sort of GURPS Western thing. That was quite fun, although actually I have to admit I hate GURPS. <laughs> no offence to Steve Jackson, which is so complicated. It takes so long to, like, do anything. <laughs> did you ever hear of a system called Chivalry and Sorcery? Yes, yeah. Way back when, and they were huge tomes of such complexity. I still remember reading the rules on how to make a campfire <laughs> and to make percentage dice rolls to light the fire and add your skill in fire lighting and all that. And I thought, no, I'm not playing that. <laughs> and GURPS is a bit like that. And so, um, Dave's plan, Dave's plans for um, 
Dragon Warriors, is that is that to lighten up the rules, or it, what, what changes can we expect? Very much, yes. We were both. We were also all playing a system called the Saga of the Icelanders. Do you know that? And it's no, based no. on the Apocalypse system. What's it called? Oh, Powered by the Apocalypse. Um, it was so perfect for these role-playing Iceland um, sagas, Viking sagas, sagas. Oh no, done Saga of the Icelanders. Just come up with uh, Saga Iceland holidays. <laughs> Those I I'll, make, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, it's an incredibly simple system where you, um, but is so rich in in its role playing possibilities because you you basically have a two d six for any given skill, and uh, seven to nine is a success, but with um, a price to pay. The DM could save that price for later, or something is a semi success and. Either that is a great success and lower than that isn't. But everyone else in the party, according to what bonds they may or may not have with you and other skills can add or deduct to that role. And it's a single role that resolves everything. And it's all about the saga telling. So the DM, like what I remember one, we had a uh, chap was doing a duel and because I played a, an ex-Persian slave who was the slave to one of the uh, lords. And it was a lot of fun because... Uh, they're obviously, they're all like primitive barbarians compared because it's all set in like 19th century Iceland or 10th century Iceland. And the Persians at that time were at the peak of their civilization with the wonderful cities and all that. And so, but the system was so simple and pure and lent itself so much to the role playing and the storytelling side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave was deciding he wanted to simplify the Dragon Warriors. It hasn't got quite as far, quite as far as some of the Icelanders in, in that sense, but. It's trying to make a, a clever, but it is generally a lot easier than GURPS, but, but more complex than some yeah. of the Iceland. Just trying to make less combats last pass more quickly and have more time for the story role-playing aspects. And I guess uh, when you get together with uh, Dave, this is where you put the world to rights, because um, I know that you're very... Oh, we have many drunken rants, yes. yes. <laughs> He's a lot more political than I am. Although we, we kind of agree, you know, but he uses it... Uh, it looks like I'm a completely rabid Remainer, which I am, of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah, at the time of uh, recording, we're in the uh, throes of an endless, uh, I don't know, catastrophe. Well, I, I, I don't know how you describe it. And of course, you collaborated with uh, Dave on Kenya Brexit. That was a that was a real eye opener. Um, most of it is Dave's, about ninety percent of it. And it, uh, in terms of the, the mechanics of game books, there's been a very clever use of time in that he's managed to put together it's pretty complicated so that essentially there are three or four i don't want to say epochs that's too long but turns but they're longer than turns in a game book structure so you have all this stuff that you do it's the sort of thing i similarly used in the uh falcon books and also the um eternal champions game books it's a complicated process of having to make choices there's only so much you can do in a given time space and having to make a time space how how to make that work in a game book Mm. so you have to sort of tick little boxes is one way of doing it until you've run out of time you have to move on to the next section of the negotiation that kind of thing but anyway it became very clear doing all of the research that leaving the eu was only going to be economically painful and no real benefits at all didn't really make any sense i did a lot of research from fishing i won't bore you with it but the poor old fishermen are doomed 
if they leave, even though they've. Anyway, that's a long and complex yeah. thing full of stuff about fishing licenses. And I suppose when you wrote it, you'd expected it to have a short shelf life, but I suppose it's been prolonged, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> it was particularly annoying because we sent it to a publisher and they sent that well, a load of publishers, and that most of the marketing people said no one's interested in Brexit and it's too late. And then Dave got in touch by an editor who'd loved the book, and it was maybe six months later, and he goes, I'm so pissed off, we should have done it, because it's, cause it's gone on and on. <laughs> and uh, it's in the newspapers every day, uh, all the time. It's like free marketing for a book. And also, you don't have to sell that book to the entire population, probably are sick of it. But the people who would buy it are the sort of hundreds of thousands who read Brexit stories every day. Yes. So. Uh, it's it's annoying, yeah. So we we sell it on print on demand on Amazon, but really it's a chance missed. Yeah. And I can just imagine them going, "Damn it, we missed that. It's too late." And then another year goes by. And they go, <laughs> Damn it, we should have done it the second time round. And it'll probably be another year, even if Boris wins, which is likely. There'll still be a year's transition before. Yes. And then there'll be all of those negotiations about the trade deal. Yes. Um, it- I certainly learned a lot from uh, participating in the book. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. Uh, you managed to. There is one way, I think, of where you can stay in power and remain. Because the premise of the book is obviously that you must simply stay in power. Yes. Yeah. So Theresa May lost. <laughs> Boris okay. is in the book, I think. It's, I can't remember his name. I think it's Peter Straw. Yeah. As in Straw headed Peter. <laughs> We gave them, we had a lot of fun giving them all the names. Like Gove is Mr. Toad, I think. <laughs> Maybe Dave's changed that one. I don't know. Farage, I think, is still Mr. Fungal. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Brilliant, thank you. Well, thanks for that, um, Jamie, and we'll be back next time to look in more detail at some of the projects you've been working on. Thank you. Okay. Another open box. Open box? It's our open box where we look backwards to look forwards. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Hello, we're in the pub because uh, we've got something to celebrate. Yes. Do you know we, we, what is it? Did you, do you not realise that this month, mm. 40 years ago, we became friends for the first time? Oh, right. Been that, it's flown, hasn't it? It, it seems longer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1979. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, mutual admiration of Princess Leia. Princess Leia was, was uh, yeah, she brought us together, didn't she? Yeah, that it was uh, a, a, a gum card, wasn't it? The, mm. the cards that you got with uh, yeah, you gum. got with bubble gum. You got Star Wars cards, didn't you? Yeah. In, in those days, for younger listeners, a, pla- a cardboard picture of some Star Wars characters was exciting. <laughs> yeah. This is before the internet. There's the internet in a pack of bubble gum. Our version of the internet. Yeah, and it was uh, overlooking at Princess Leia yes. at that time that uh, brought us together. It's slightly salacious, that isn't it? It does, uh, but we were only eleven. Yeah, I think I think you said, "Oh, I like Princess Leia." And I said, "Oh, I like her as well." Yeah. And that was it. That was it. It was kind of common ground, and we both like Princess Leia. And because of that moment, we're together. We're together still. There was something. There was something else as well. There was gaming that brought us together in a in an obtruse way because. At lunchtime, there was a group of people who played line tig. Line tig, yes. Line tig, yes. where you would run around the yard, and the person who was tagged, or taked, as we say, yeah, take. You had to stay on the lines. You had to stay on the lines. Which line. were the lines of, of various um, netball, football, football, netball, basketball, 
Yeah. No one played any of those games. They've gone to the trouble of, of lining out all these different sports for us. No one gave a monkey, no one, did. no one played any of those. We just ran around them, didn't we? Yeah, ran around Taking around. each other. Taking each other. <laughs> and there was a kind of a large group of people playing that initially, wasn't there? Mm. But we managed to get ostracised because we kept insisting on introducing new rules. Yes. You know, yeah. trying to find mechanical balance for the safety spot. Do you remember that? I do, I do remember that. Yeah, we were overcomplicated it. <laughs> you know, no one else was interested. <laughs> and then there was something else. I, I don't know if you remember this. Remember this that brought us together because we were playing Tig and then everybody went away. Yeah. And I said to you, I'm thinking of releasing the hostages in Iran. <laughs> I do remember that. You still haven't done that. You've still got some. <laughs> I had this, I was at home, I had an escape from Colditz kit. Oh yes, I remember those. Yeah. Oh, well, good. So you got like a... I mean, I, I think if you were sent to Colditz, they'd take, take them off you. <laughs> they weren't much good, you'd have to parachute it in. But, but that's, they were good. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a play kit, wasn't it? And, yeah. Uh, Why did you hear it? You got like a, official documents, didn't you? You got, you got like fake papers, didn't you? And uh, did you get like a compass and... Uh, a gun and stuff like that. I seem to remember like a weird jelly thing in it. Am I imagining no, that? Wasn't it? I think it was something to do with invisible ink. Did you get a glider? You can escape from the top of the castle. Like you did. <laughs> do it. No, it's very, very big. <laughs> there was definitely jelly in it. I don't know. Mm. Might get very long. The can't Jelly. Jelly. Get long in that prison. Cold. It's yeah. Anyway, you. Um, I had this kit and I was plotting because I think about the time it was when the uh, diplomats were held hostage in Iran and it was in the mm. news all the time wasn't yeah, it yeah yeah so I hatched a plan for how I was going to release them yes and one player always had ideas above your station <laughs> it's fair to say <laughs> you were laughing but we'll carry on Noble, noble that you were concerned about these people. Prepared to risk your life. You're mocking me, but you were. I am mocking you. (laughs) Rightly so, but go on. You were in. I was in on it. Yeah, I was in on it. I have to say, I think I took it with equal seriousness. And we plotted, didn't we? Plotted how we were going to do it. Mm. And uh, we made these artificial papers out of the. Yeah, yeah, we did to get over the border, and we brought a plastic gun into school, didn't we? Yeah. This conversation, you realise this conversation means we can never visit Iran now. It's probably going on some official record. And if you get as soon as you get off the plane in Iran, yeah. they arrest you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we did it, didn't we? We, we actually reenacted it. On a well, we, when you say we did it, um, <laughs> I think I think we need to be clear. It, it was sort of kind of reenaction. It was an early foray into role play, wasn't it? I think that's that's what it was. We didn't release any hostages in Iran. No, but we went on the park. Um, we dipped about for a bit. <laughs> Didn't know about the park. It's essentially it's tantamount to releasing the hostages. You know, you know, imagine an eleven-year-old imagination. And we ran, we ran over the uh, farm with um, Bolton. Bolton, Bolton, Bolton into, into Freedom. Yeah. Into Bolton, which was free, free, free Bolton. Yeah, Bolton <laughs> farm with, which was in, uh, some kind of weird theocracy. <laughs> I suppose what I'm getting round to is that we've always had this. <laughs> getting round to, yeah, go on. <laughs> we've always had this sense of um, 
playing games, you know. Yeah, playing, yeah, playing. yeah, That yeah, was, yeah. you yeah. could say that, that was like live action role playing. It, it was, was, yeah. Our yeah. first, yeah, yeah. In our young mind, because mm. what is RPGs other than. Just using your imagination. Using your imagination. Yeah. Oh, just dicking about to rules. Just dicking about to rules, yeah. And even though the rules are fairly, could be fairly lax, can't they? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think as well, as we've said this before, and I think that's why role playing games kind of stuck, because we, we like to use our imagination, and suddenly you've got a, a medium where you could do that. Yeah. In a, in a slightly more legitimate way than just running around with an escape from cold, it's kit. Yeah, and then a plastic gun. Mm. Yeah. Now I'm bringing this up as well because we've had uh, Jamie Thompson on the program, and he, yeah. he mentioned Killer. Oh now, yeah. Do, do you remember Killer? I do yeah. They had they had a copy of this at our local toy store, didn't they? And I yeah. think mm. around the time when we first got into uh, role playing games, yeah. Killer had a strange fascination. That we we used to read it in there. Yeah, um, it was. It, yeah, it, it felt a bit kind of dangerous, didn't it? Um, Oh, because it wasn't a role-playing game in, in terms of dice. It was like a game where you, you tried to kill your friends, but with a banana gun. A gun as a, a banana as a gun. Mm. And, uh, so uh, one one step above the Escape from Cold, it's kit. Yeah. Fruit bowl. Yes. <laughs> a vicious fruit bowl. Deadly fruit bowl. Apple as a grenade. Banana as a gun. Yeah, and uh, a piece of string to electrocute it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then, and like some strange lengths that you have to go to to like assassinate mm. your uh, friends. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very odd, odd thing, wasn't it? I mean, I think it was odder as well because we'd gone through the, the pain barrier of understanding what a role playing game was. You know, opening room quest, opening traveller, working out how to play those, and then weirdly looking at killer which in, in some ways was more akin to what we'd been doing before. Yeah. Wasn't it? Running around, dicking about with a banana, or it's a gum, you're dead, bang, bang, you're dead. It's kind of like, on the one sense, one sense, child's play. But in another way, it felt weird. I said, like, well, what's this? Well, it, it, I've got to look at it now. I've got, I've got a copy of it now. And it is like a BDSM handbook. It's, it's, full, <laughs> it's full of, like... Mm. Disclaimers of what you should try and avoid doing. Try and avoid doing is actually killing people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think the weapon classifications is hilarious. There's class class A, which is like things like a banana. That's the that banana, right? Yeah. That's class A. So it's not even a weapon. You can't really hurt someone with the banana. With a gun. And then there's B, which is like oh, a bit of string, or a bit of rope, and C, which is something else. And then you mentioned category D. Category D, like were real weapons. This is don't use them. <laughs> use real guns yeah don't use real guns don't kill your friends yeah does that are you saying, where's this going it's on a rabbit hole this hasn't it of, yeah what, and, and what? places you shouldn't go don't go into um, the opposite sex toilets, toilets. yeah it does just mentions that doesn't it yeah, yeah. places that are off limits yeah. yeah the opposite sex toilets a moving car moving cars yeah yeah, yeah. So, nuclear and, missile silos <laughs> don't push any buttons you kill all your friends but you've won well <laughs> done what humanity's lost <laughs> and, and looking at looking at it now I'd, as a kid it would have an appeal wouldn't it mm, yeah but as an adult it just it, it the thought of playing a game like this where you thought right the rest of my friends are trying to assassinate me <laughs> at any moment now 
during yeah. today it could be terrifying even it, if they did have a banana as a gun it would still be terrifying it, yeah. it'd be like um, you know the return of the pink panther it'd be like <laughs> Kato Kato coming out of the corner yeah yeah, yeah. Kato you jump out of a, a cupboard in your bedroom try and kill yeah. your friend yeah I, I don't know a bedroom's off limits oh bedroom's off sorry bedroom's off our wardrobe's <laughs> off limits I don't know unless they're in the bedroom <laughs> or toilets of the opposite sex <laughs> but wardrobes themselves are not yeah so even then, it could still be frightening. Yeah, the, the thought of you leaping out at me in the kitchen. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's with a banana going bang, 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 bang your head. But then again, that's category A. <laughs> I, I could leap out with something. I could push it to category C. You know, like what? a stick of celery, heated frying pan. <laughs> I don't know. Stick of celery, kiwi fruit, kiwi fruit grenade. Boom, you're dead. And all your family are too. So that's a good scatter effect. Shrapnel. So Kill is still available. You, still, yeah, you can yeah. still get it yeah. uh, to download from the yeah. Steve Jackson game. I, I suggest you go out and do it because it'll it amuse you. It'll free you out. <laughs> if nothing else, it'll either amuse you or freak you out. Or both. Yeah. Yeah. On, on the one hand, you can see that it would appeal to a certain sense of humour. Mm. Um, but I don't know if it's game. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's a strange... It, it's strange because... Now you sort of think <laughs> you can go back to the eighties. You know, you, you used to have people's so sort of anxieties about role playing games, didn't they? Oh, they're playing D and D. Look, there's a spell here that, that's about summoning demons and sacrificing people. What are these children up to? Now that's kind of easier to explain away than running around, you know, trying to pretend to kill your friends with yeah. a piece of string. Somehow that seems harder to explain. In some senses, I can't imagine my dad coming out and saying, "What are you doing? Oh, I'm just digging a, a two-inch deep, two-inch deep, deep pit, pit to get Stephen yeah. and assassinate him." All right, carry on, carry on then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nothing to worry about. Oh, well, oh yeah, oh, yeah, it's always hard. It did be a bit hard. There you go. I'd be interested to know if anyone's ever got a go at playing it. So, playing live-action role-playing, yes is something that we were always drawn to, weren't we? But we were never drawn to enough mm. to pay for it. So No. Treasure Trap. We saw Treasure Trap. Mm. I think at Norman yeah. Games Day we mentioned before, haven't we? You, you saw a demonstration of that. Well, I saw a demonstration of it. Um, and when I say demonstration, I use the term loosely because it essentially was two groups of people charging at each other with rubber swords and foam maces hitting each other, so... That, that was the demonstration. Yeah. Um, hard to know what was going on. I mean, they were always advertised in uh, White Dwarf um, to go to, uh, I think it was in Cheshire, wasn't it? The yeah, castle yeah. in Cheshire. Cheshire, down south. Cheshire. Um, and whenever, <laughs> and whenever um, role-playing appeared on TV, it was always accompanied by... Well, I, uh, I think uh, this, this may just be our interpretation of things, but I, I think it's it, it may be other people's as well. But what was odd around that time, the kind of mid-80s, was that we'd got into role-playing games, sort of, what, early 80s? We'd been playing them for about two, three, four years. Um, and then things like Treasure Trap emerged, um, the live-action role-play. And it felt, at the time, I think, this is my memory of it, it felt like it was a natural progression that... These role-playing games are all well and good, but they've had the day. You know, they've, they've been around for three years, I suppose, an eternity. 
<laughs> and the next next step will be live action role play. Why wouldn't it be? Why would you want to still sit there with a piece of paper when you can dress up and charge around with a sword and do it for real? And it did, did there was a sense, I think, in the mid mid eighties for for it might have only been like twelve months, eighteen months, that that, that was the way it was going. And yeah. that, you know, in the future we would be sitting here being nostalgic about role playing games. Um and no one will be playing them. Everyone will be going to some uh, caves somewhere, wandering around in a robe, with yeah. a pointy hat on, casting imaginary spells. It did, did feel like that, didn't it? I yeah. think that it was, it was the way it was going to go. The progression of things. The um, but we we never we weren't able to pay for it, so we hatched a plan, didn't we? Yes. To do DIY. Just DIY. 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 LARP. DIY LARP. <laughs> So when we met Eddie, so this is some years later, wasn't it? Yes. You know, our uh, hostage-freeing um, SAS days were over. Days were over. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we didn't like to talk about it. No, we were fully into Robin of Sherwood at that yeah. time. Yeah, we talked about that earlier in, in the year, mm. and that thought of messing about in the woods was a big part of uh, yeah Robin of Sherwood, and we wanted to be part of it. And we yeah. wanted to yeah. do it, and uh, Eddie and Herbs told us of a plan that yeah. they, they well, the cast of, let's, let's say the cast of characters were yeah. me, you and Eddie and, and Herbs yeah it was Herbs wasn't it Eddie's friend Eddie's slightly odd it's say odd friend Herbs yeah. yeah and Swab as well Swab Martin Swabber he, again you know he, he and it was, was a lot bigger than us he was not bigger than us I'm quite big but he was bigger yeah yeah. Um, and there was also our Carl Eddie's uh, Eddie's nephew yeah. So his nephew, his nephew, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Eddie's um, nephew. Eddie has a much older sister, so his nephew was about our age. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the cast of characters who were yeah. all keen to do a bit of DIY LARPing. DIY LARPing. Yeah. So, in the weeks before, we had to prepare, didn't we? We had to prepare. Mm. Uh, we were going to go, we had this this weekend planned that we were going to go away. Yeah. Go, uh, well, Her- Herbs had a, some distant relatives who had a farm, didn't they? Yeah, farm. There was like, he said there was a bungalow on yeah. the farm. A bungalow. A bungalow. No, no. Hold that we'll thought. come back to that. Yeah. Let's come back to that. I thought a bungalow, had a bungalow on the farm, to my mind. That's yeah, yeah. a nice so idea. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking a bungalow, I'm thinking a thatched roof with um, a, a, a real fire and smoke coming out. At the, very, at the very least, I'm thinking four walls and a roof yeah. <laughs> but as we'll find out we to be disappointed on that front weren't we but anyway let's, 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 let's not get to that bit yeah. Yeah. It, it was a bungalow and there was a barn and some farmland and it seemed like in Herbs' opinion an ideal spot to do a bit of LARPing yeah yeah and, and weeks before we had to prepare our costumes and characters costume and weapons and weapons both get the weapons yes yeah. so we t- Transformed my dad's garage into a smithy, didn't we? <laughs> yes. With uh, wood, and we planed uh, rapiers, didn't we? We made very fine things. I, I seem to remember wrapping around the hilt some elastoplast to give us a grip on the yes. hilt. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think um, we made we made as well uh, foam maces, didn't we? So like a broom yeah. broom handle cut in half. 
and then we wrapped um, foam and it put it a little sock over it. So it was like a mess. You could wallop somewhere, it wouldn't really hurt. And didn't we find um, a couple of old lids that we used as... Plastic like, bin lids. Plastic bin plastic lids. Plastic bin lids as shields. Shields, yeah. yeah. Write this down, everyone. Yeah. When you're yeah. laugh, these are the, these are the things. This is, this is, this is what you need to do. Yeah. Plastic bin lids. Uh-huh. See, that's the, the wheelie bin now. Can't do that, can you? <laughs> that's, that's what... It's this country's come to. You can't make a plastic... Well, yeah, plastic bin lids as shields. And uh, I remember having a... Uh, uh, having a cape as well. A red cape. I yeah. don't know Eddie's, Eddie's sister made us some, like, hoods and stuff. Didn't that medieval, styly hoods, do you remember? Yeah. Because she, she was a seamstress, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she, she made us these, these hoods with the... Um, yeah, medieval style. Hoods and cloaks, yeah, that's right. Yeah. To look the, to look the part, to look the part. <laughs> he wouldn't look weird running around with a sword, and people say he's got a sword, but he didn't look very medieval. And I made a helmet. You did. I, I, I was particularly proud of my helmet. You were, uh, which was a garden bucket, a garden bucket, yeah, uh, with eye holes cut out in like a grill fashion. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> yes. It looked good, didn't it? It did look good until you turned your head. <laughs> and, and your head turned. But the bucket, the bucket didn't. You were like a, like a rubbish Ned Kelly. Yeah. Like a, like a kind of cut price Ned Kelly. That you were very proud. You thought, this, I'll survive anything wearing this helmet. Yeah. But of course, you couldn't see anything. Couldn't see anything because every time I moved, the, the, the bucket just stayed the same because there's no padding in it. It's just swir- swinging around on your neck. And I couldn't cut high, high holes all the way around it because no. that would just be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That'd, be that'd look stupid, wouldn't it? Yeah. With a bucket on my head. Yeah, with yeah, really a bucket on my head, just put two eye holes <laughs> Don't know, put multiple eye holes on. So you'd look stupid. We didn't want to look stupid, did we? <laughs> no. So we, we did our weapons and armour. Yeah. We did quite a good job. Yeah, daggers as well, I think we did. Daggers. Well, little yeah. daggers. And I think, I seem to remember us gluing yeah. um, jewels on them. Yeah. And then we have as well, we wanted to cast spells. So we got some silly string. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. web uh, spell. Web spell. Yeah. And uh, little pots of glitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to cast spells. I think we'd done it properly. I think And then, then, herbs, Eddie. And Swabber turned up with their weapons. It's fair to say, I think the best way of describing them is cricket bats. <laughs> painted silver. Painted silver with some runes painted on. Yeah. It's cricket bat. I remember that we, we looked at it and thought, if, it, if, that, if you hit us with those, you will at best break a limb, at worst kill us. Category D, I'd say. Category D weapon and killer, yeah. <laughs> cricket bat. Well, you hit me with a cricket bat. <laughs> It was a cricket bat with like a. Uh, it, was like, uh, it was it was like Arthur's plywood, and yeah. they'd used it was like really big, and they were huge, yeah. like claymores, weren't they? Yeah. But you thought, oh, you're gonna you're gonna hit us with us. That's gonna injure us. Do you know what? So could at that point, what, what? I could have said, we're not going. But you know what? We didn't. <laughs> we carried on. Carried on. You know. You know. Uh, Blythe, secretly, I was thinking, I'll be all right, I've got a helmet. <laughs> well, you were, yeah, you were, you were going to survive. I was thinking, I'm going to die because I've not got a helmet. All I've got is a bin lid shield. That'll put my parry skills up to it, otherwise, I'm a dead man.
my name is Shannon Ferguson, and I go by the name The Angry Monk on various RPG forums and Twitter. I want to thank Dirk the Dice for giving me the opportunity to share my first, last, and everything. My first is Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. My first contact with AD&D happened at a friend's dining room table. I was not a participant, but an annoying onlooker, as his older brother and one of his friends were playing this unusual game. I knew it was a game because there were dice, very weird dice, and there were tokens, little silver figures holding swords, but there was no game board. Clifford and I hunched at the end of the table, badgering his older brother with questions. What is this? we asked. He replied, this is advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Where's the game board? You don't need one. How'd you play? Buzz off. What I eventually learned was that there was no game board because you could go anywhere and do anything in this game. I watched carefully as the older brother drew out a dungeon for his friend on graph paper. I saw his friend making decisions about where he wanted his token to go and what he wanted his token to do. I saw these fascinating dice being rolled as the older brother's friend fought goblins and orcs and skeletons. I cannot exaggerate the incredible epiphany that occurred. This game could go on forever. I was hooked. I had read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and this game would allow me to play in a world like Middle-earth and be a character like Strider or Gandalf. The possibilities were exploding in my mind. A few months later, I saw the game advertised in a department store catalog and begged my mum for it. It was, of course, the wrong edition, Moldvay's basic Dungeons & Dragons, but it didn't matter. This was the game for me. My last is Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Flash forward 40 years. I teach in a small-town high school in Ontario, Canada. Although I continued to dabble in RPGs, I knew that Dungeons & Dragons was a major faux pas in adult conversations. Even my professional colleagues, so caring and concerned about our students' foibles, would roll their eyes when they learned that I had played D&D. Until one day, when a group of four first-year students nervously approached my desk, they asked, Are you Mr. Ferguson? Have you ever heard of a game called Dungeons & Dragons? And that was the beginning of my high school's D&D club. We've been playing 5th edition D&D for the past four years. I'll admit that I had my doubts about a newer version of the game, but as it was the only game that these students wanted to play, I bit the bullet and purchased the three core books. It's been fun. We've ventured through Ravenloft, fought giants, and I even led them through my homebrew version of the fighting uh, fighting fantasy port town of Black Sand. Today we have 18 players, 3 DMs, including myself, and a healthy cross-section of genders. The teachers in my school now kind of respect D&D. My everything is Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game by Chris Gonerman is the game I play the most. I'm involved in a group on Roll20, and we play on a weekly basis. When I came out of my own deep freeze, I looked at, I looked at all my old games, at other games, and at other versions of my favorite games. 
but I, I found them all wanting. They were either too clunky or too complicated. I realized that I wanted to go back to my Moldvay and Cook basic and expert D&D, but there were things about those rules that I wanted to change and update. And then I found basic fantasy role-playing game. Here was simplicity with just the right amount of crunch. Perfect for dungeon crawling and treasure hunting adventures. And what's this? All sorts of pre-made modules and supplements to keep me going for years. And it was free. Yeah, that's right. Free. I have paid for printed copies of the rules and several of the modules. But everything you ever wanted was absolutely free. How could I resist? So, while I haven't ventured too far from my roots of Dungeons & Dragons, I do occasionally play other games. Thanks to the Grogner files, I've picked up RuneQuest, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, Tunnels and Trolls, and just recently, Mothership. But always at the end, I'm back in that dungeon, swinging a sword or hoping I have enough magic missiles to survive. So, thanks again. Dirk, Blythe, Ed, and the Daily Dwarf for reinvigorating this old grognard. Cheers. Welcome back to uh, Little Bolton Town Hall. I must apologise, they've turned the uh, volume up. It's uh, a little bit later on. Uh, we're going to continue our story of uh, going to the far place of Newton Lee Willows. <laughs> Down south. Down south. Down south. Down south Travelled there by a bus, didn't we? Swab didn't turn up, did he? No, he didn't. Um, and when we got there, I think the people who owned the the people who had the, they had a house on the land, didn't they? Yeah, which was quite a nice house. Yeah, um, but they looked slightly terrified when we turned up. Yeah, so just be rightly so. so. So we were picturing a farm, weren't we? That, that yeah. that's how it was sold to us. It was a picturesque old... farm with a lovely bungalow that you could all sleep in, what, and, uh, and, a barn, like? and, uh, and a barn where we, that we could use to. Um, reenact, reenact the battles of days of yore. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that, that's what we were expecting. Yes, and so we turned up at the farmhouse, and this old elderly couple—they must have been in the eighties, mustn't they? <laughs> yes. It took a while for them to answer the door. Yeah, yeah. And then they see in front of them these like kids, and kids, they looked yeah. terrified. Didn't they, they did. They look terrified. Yeah, like... <laughs> yeah, they did. And uh, Herbs, you know, did his introductions and uh, reminded them who he was. He's some relative, distant relative. Distant relative, and he was yeah. turning up, and he seemed to confirm that it was all right. And he was about to go when Eddie said, where were you last week? Well, he didn't you say, didn't you enjoy your holiday? Yeah, that was he it. He said, did you, did, you enjoy, did you enjoy your holiday? They looked, they looked bemused, didn't they? Yeah. And he gave, gave Herbs a wry look as if to say, oh, I, yeah. Yeah, it we couldn't so, come last week because we're all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that set the tone. It set it? a bit of a tone. Yeah, it set the tone. Yeah. and that tone wasn't helped when we actually saw the bungalow. Uh, no, it wasn't. No, because no. it was essentially um, three walls and no roof. Yeah, it, it, it reminded me for those for those who, who were into modelling, uh, airfix modelling at the time. It looked like. The bombed out Airfix house. Do you remember? There was yeah, a model yeah. of a bombed house that you could buy. I think I had it. Um, and <laughs> it looked like that. 
I just did slightly worse than that, actually. In the days before, in my imagination, I was thinking that, you know, the people who were on the farm would uh, come to us at night just to make sure we were all comfy. <laughs> Look after us. <laughs> Look after us. They would turn up with some biscuits and perhaps some hot, hot milk. Hot milk. I've cold, never, I've never cold, had that. biscuits. I've never had that. I just imagined it like eating. You've never had that in your life, though. No, no. Oh, well, dear. Oh, dear. Even blighting, I thought it would be like that, you know, where... I can it, understand your obsession with hobnobs now. It's not becoming clear like therapy. I just thought they'd be coming, you know, with like, we'll just bake some biscuits, yeah, lads. look um, after you. Look after a nice, plush bungalow. What they actually did was lock all the doors and windows. They locked all doors, they didn't leave. They, they did not see them. <laughs> we turned up and um, we walked in and we, we were already feeling... Hello. I think the word disappointed doesn't really cut it, does it? It's no, slightly unsettled by unsettled it. By it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we walked into this uh, room and there was no open fire. And it, that makes it sound more idyllic than it was. It, it was, was just a fire. It was just a fire, yeah, yeah, fire in the middle of the thing. And a, a mattress. Yeah. And Eddie lifted up the mattress and a load of cockroaches ran out of it. Mm. Yeah. Scurried in every single direction. As they do. Yeah. And uh, went to the second room, and the second room had like a an iron bed, didn't it? Like an iron yeah, bed, bed with it, with it, yeah, with a kind of wire, the wire bit, the, the springs and all that. Mm. We decided we were going to both sleep on the big bed with the springs on, no mattress, just a spring, yeah. like a weird Markham and Wise on a bed of nails. <laughs> yes, weren't we? Yeah, you know. But it, but it was worth enduring the pain to know you were. A couple of feet off the ground, you know, because <laughs> of all the things that could have got you on the ground. Yeah. I uh, locked away my provisions, corned beef. Oh yeah, you got some corned beef, didn't you? And loads of pot noodles. Pot noodles, but with nowhere boiling any water. There was no, no water. There was no water, was there? Sir? There was a standpipe, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah. We had to go to a standpipe. Yeah, but it didn't really work. No. Well, the, only, the only source of food I remember was there's up the road there's a petrol station. You remember? Yeah, yeah. And we used to make regular trips to the petrol station to um, to buy like Mars bars and crisps and stuff because we were just starving basically. And as the as the weekend went on, we looked more and more kind of unkempt. And there was a, a girl behind the counter, wasn't there? It was always yeah. the same girl. Um, I think her imagination was quite attractive, and I think we had discussions about oh, whether one of us should ask her out. <laughs> as if. As if one of us would turn up covered in soot and fire smoke, ask her out, would you like to go out for a drink with me? Are you an eligible bachelor? <laughs> yeah, come back and to my bungalow. Come back to my bungalow. Well, no, I'll come back to my bungalow because of the people and it's not really a bungalow, it's a ribbon. But, you know, like, uh, ask her out. You don't need an answer now because I'll be back in now for another bloody Mars bar. Yeah. I'm starving. But <laughs> It was the only. It was only humanity. She was the face of civilization, wasn't she? This this bored girl, Betty. Just she looked like. I remember. I can see the look on her face now. That disdain, wasn't it? Yeah. Said, "Oh, who are these? They keep coming in, and every time they come in, they look more and more unkempt and smelly and covered (laughs) in smoke. You know, (laughs) they come in from the Mars bar. What's going on here? She's probably worried as well. And so. The, the, the layout of the place in the centre of it. it it wasn't like a farm was it it was like a, a massive um, concrete slab with a yeah massive barn built on it and in the distance near distance 
there was Newton the Will was Colliery. Yes, Colliery, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was the time of the Myers strike, yeah. right, wasn't it? Yeah. So that had like an eerie... Yeah, it was lit up, wasn't it? It had an eerie glow to it. Yeah, it was a bit sad, that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And so... Uh, and, and then on this other side, there were fields and fields and fields and fields, as far as you could see. <laughs> there were. Of corn. Corn. Was it corn or some, something? We don't. We didn't know. We, didn't we still know. don't know. We're not farmers, but for our imagination, it was corn. Yeah, cornfields. I, I seem to remember that we then went on like a photo shoot. We put our kit on. We went. Yeah. In the field, there, are, there is photographic evidence. In, oh, 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 there was. Whether yeah. it's been destroyed, or not, I don't know. I hope it has. Yeah, like that to get out. Yeah, because we took a, we took an instamatic with us, didn't we? Yeah, we, we did. Yeah. Took, took some pictures yeah. of us uh, wielding swords mm. in, in this field, and uh, you know we looked wielding we, we swords or cricket bats with rooms <laughs> on, depending who you were. Yeah. <laughs> I had my elegant rapier. Your elegant um, helmet on, Ned <laughs> Kelly with rapier. <laughs> feeling it com- was really feeling good, comfortable. That no cricket back can penetrate it. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we, we took some pictures, and uh, I remember that being the best bit. That was the best bit, yeah, because it hadn't really started to go wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's like a family holiday. It's the best bit, is right at the beginning. It's not started to go wrong. It's the same principle, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. We hadn't started to uh, yeah. get irritated by each other, had we? Mm. No. And, and, and hungry. Yeah. Slightly touchy. Yeah. Is that Lord of the Flies? <laughs> it was. <laughs> so we devised this scenario where uh, part, half of the party would uh, be uh, members of the castle and the other part of the castle uh, party would have to infiltrate. Yes. It was groundbreaking stuff. Groundbreaking. And uh, I think I was on the uh, infiltrating You and Eddie were on the infiltrating side, me, Herbs and Carl were on the defensive side. I, I don't know quite know why the numbers worked out like that. You'd think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't it? Didn't my uh, great... I, I, I remember now, we had to try and get hold of the dagger that yeah, I Yeah, that's written. right. It was, a, it was like an ornamental dagger we had. It wasn't a real dagger, it was just like an ornamental dagger. I, I made it because I spent a lot of time yeah. like, sticking stuff to it. Yeah. I'd done like an elastic plastic. It was like a magical dagger and you had to retrieve it and we had to defend it. Yeah, yeah, that was it. And I remember my tactic was to talk to you, you know, do a charisma roll yeah. and just keep you talking whilst I knew that Eddie was sneaking around in the pitch darkness. Pitch dark, banging your head on things. <laughs> Wish I had a bucket helmet. There you go. <laughs> and I was talking down below and you were up ahead, oh no, go go, go away. Yeah. Yeah. And then all I heard was Eddie attacking. <laughs> Up above my head. I, I remember running out of the barn because I thought it's safer out here than in there because you know, I keep banging my head on things. There's a big hole in the barn that I can't see. And the kid, I'm going to die just falling down the big hole in the barn. The barn kind of, kind of, kind of like an upper let up a bit, didn't it? it yeah. In. And this big hole in it. Yeah. You just couldn't see in the dark. And you could get out alive. Our Carl, our Carl came at me yeah. with his plywood yeah. Um, yeah. cricket bat swinging it. Backwards and forwards coming at me. I thought, thank God I've got a helmet. And I was like, backing back, fighting him. I th- my sword snapped because it was only a flimsy thing. Yeah. I reached inside my pocket to cast a spell, silly string. That wasn't going to do anything. No. 
turned your head, couldn't see because the house <laughs> could see. I fell over. I thought I was dead. And at that point, I think we all realised it was a bit of a crap idea. <laughs> I think that, that was the ironic thing about it, that there was that thing we did in the bar, and after that, we didn't do any more, did we? No. It just descended into think, some kind of weird camping trip. Yeah. I, th- I think we had a bit of a... We had a duel with the maces, didn't we? The four maces. Yeah, four maces we good. saw. But I nearly shot your leg with a... With an air pistol. Eddie brought his air pistol. He did shot, bring an air pistol. shot you in the leg with it. Yeah, yeah. Category D weapon. Category D weapon. Yeah, he did. I said, just be careful with that. It's loaded. No, it isn't. Do the show! Oh, safety catch. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't hit your leg. It missed. It, it missed. missed. It didn't miss. It, it missed, missed, but it could have. Yeah. 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 You could have been walking with a limp there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Uh, and, and uh, I remember that uh, pistol because uh, there were like rats, weren't there? Massive yeah, yeah. rats. And, and he uh, tried to kill the rats with the air pistol. Yeah, he tried to aim the rats. And there, there was one of them, it was massive. And I said, Eddie, I think it's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's dog. It's the people that go, is that a dog? Don't shoot the dog. It's yeah. a rat. Go, oh, it's a dog. I think it's yeah. a dog. Yeah. No, I think, I think with that, that point on, after the barn incident. Yeah. The barn siege. It did, it did just descend into um, camp, a camping trip, didn't it? So yeah. just kind of goofing around, you know. And then there was the the weird noise in the night. Remember the weird noise well, in the night? Well, this is the thing. After after that excitement of that, we didn't, we didn't do any more. Yeah. We thought, right, we, let's put a fire up. Yeah. And um, we were a bit concerned, weren't we? Because when we were looking at the fire. The flames were green, weren't they? Well, flames were green because I think Herbs was collecting wood in some chemical, some book. You remember, it's like yeah, a, yeah. A, a barrel that had sort of skull and crossbones on it, some deadly poison or something, <laughs> some kind of pesticide. And yeah, he's making toast on a, on a green fire. Hey, you want some toast? No, you're all right. I'll sit to my miles and miles. I'm off to the, I'm off to the petrol station to chat with that girl at the petrol yeah. station. See if she shows any interest. Now I'm covered in even more smoke. Yeah. Green they smoke. Look even, they will look even worse. Maybe that's what she wants. Yeah. I don't look bad enough. <laughs> so we went through the night and uh, we're in this... You've got to imagine it. We were huddled around this. You'll have to imagine it. You were there. I was there. Yeah, I'm saying to the people... Oh, listening. sorry. Yeah. That's right. We're huddled around this fire. <laughs> yeah. Sat on this soggy mattress. Yeah. Looking at the fire. Yeah. On the walls were the words gong gong yeah, yeah. Planet, planet gong planet gong because swab and herbs were into slightly more well more progressed prog rock yeah they were into like the extreme ends of prog, prog rock, rock yeah. yeah planet gong flying teapot yeah. is that a good planet gong album? I don't know yeah yeah Radio Norman the flying teapot I think that's it. right yeah, yeah something yeah, they were into big really they, into were, that, they were big into gong yeah, yeah. and uh, obviously they came here to listen to gong in their heads uh, previously and <laughs> we we were uh, sat around the fire and then Eddie started talking about the children of the corn the children of the corn is that Stephen King yeah it was yeah. a film or something isn't it and we heard a weird noise outside didn't we yeah like a whistling noise we're coming for you look at that we're coming for you we're all making sanity rolls at this point shh we're the whistling women in the whistling weren't it? Mm. and it was like some kind of valve thing wasn't it going 
It was some. It was some sort of farm. Yeah, it was a farm thing, like a windmill, a windmill thing in the field. Ultimately, it was making this strange whistling noise. But the lot more we sat in the, more we sat in the bungalow. Sorry, ruin. The more we sat in the ruin and listened to this. The, the more it kind of started to really freak us out, didn't it? Whoever are you? Did we go out? Did we end up going yeah. out? Yeah. But it took us, it, I just remember it took us hours to pluck up the courage to go out. And in the end, we all, we all go together. It was like Friday the 13th yeah, or Halloween, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. You know, we're all going to get bumped off one by one with this weird whistling noise. And we went out and in the field there was this kind of, I don't know what it was, sort of, I'm not a farmer. In a typical John Carpenter thing, that we would be killed for having impure thoughts about the, woman. the girl at the petrol station. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. We're kind of asking for it because yeah. of impure thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Where can they find? Blood splattered Mars bars from there. Where can they find? We man- managed to get some sleep, I think. Mm. And well, you say sleep, but it's me and you lying on that double bed side by side with every spring sticking into our body. I remember it being a borderline hallucinogenic experience where yeah. I couldn't sleep, but I was drifting in and out of sleep, feeling these stabbing pains, thinking, why am I, why am I lying on this? Then remembering the cockroaches and thinking, oh, I know why I'm lying on it. Yeah. I remember waking up with the pattern of the springs on my face. Yes. Yes. And... It had gone, it had gone from... We tried to reenact... We tried to reenact RuneQuest or D&D. I think what we did reenact was called Cthulhu. It was like I think we all left with our sanity slightly dented. Yeah. And and do you know why I think that? It's my only real vivid memory of it. I've got lots of memories of it because it it was a very intense experience. Yeah, it was, yeah. But he's waking up with the the springs (laughs) on my face, a bit of dribble... And for some reason, Howard Jones's song, I'd Like to Get to Know You Well, I'd Like to Get to Know You Well, I'd Like to Get to Know You Well, going over and over. Not his best one. (laughs) I mean, if he has a best one, that's not it, but go on. It was going through my head, going through my head when I woke up, and I saw Herbs, and he was stealing me corned beef from the wardrobe, and he just went, <laughs> that happened, didn't it? That did happen, yeah. Because I remember waking up and seeing that as well. <laughs> and thinking, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Well, I think we all thought that. The only person who didn't think that was Herbs. The rest of us. And I think me, you, Eddie and Carl were all waiting. I don't know who it was. I think it was Eddie, actually. Yeah. Who said, we're going home. Yeah. So we'd gone on the Friday. This is, we'd endured the Friday night and on the Saturday um, Saturday kind of afternoon we, we, me and you had been saying I want to go home, I can't stand this anymore yeah. it's horrendous and I think it was Eddie who said I think we should go and me, me and you then pounced on it and thought yeah, yeah I let's agree, go. Yeah, let's, let's go. go so we did didn't we we caught, we caught the bus back to uh, Bolton from yeah. uh, Newton the Willows yeah and that was a bit of a, an epiphany as well. Wasn't well, that was it? yeah, that was slightly another, another. I think probably another D six sanity loss after the couple of D tens we'd lost with the whistling women and all the rest of it. Yeah. Well, the the bus back from Newton the Willows was Saturday night, wasn't it? By the time we got on it, it was like six, seven o'clock Saturday night, and uh, yeah, the Willows. It's fair to say it's a bit posh, isn't it? Yeah, posh. 
And as the buzz was going through Newton and Willows, all these attractive young people got on, didn't they? A bit slightly, maybe a couple of years older than us, but very attractive. Particularly very attractive young women got on. And we were a bunch of 16-year-old lads, looking essentially like vagrants, looking like covered in smoke, stinking at the back of this bus. I'd forgotten to take toilet paper. I don't think anybody's got toilet paper. <laughs> we didn't take toilet paper. This we didn't think it through, did we? Did <laughs> not think it through. Oh, dear. But I remember sitting there and thinking... You really need to, this is not this has not been a good idea. This is all embarrassed slightly embarrassing, isn't it? And all these people done up to the nines on a Saturday night, all smelling nice and looking great. And look at you, back of the back bus. of the bus, looking like something the cats dragged in. Yeah. Never and that and that was the end of our lapping experience. It was. That we never ever went there again. We went back to the old pen and pencil and paper tabletop rope and stayed there ever since. Yeah, we have. I know, but I do think that was probably the beginning of the end, though. It something changed. Uh, yeah, and that we started to question our life choices. And yeah, I think the deep freeze it sort of started that. Gradually, it took a while, didn't it? But yeah, it, another four four or so years, and then it kicked in, hadn't it? Probably. I don't know. I think it was shorter than that. I think it was within that year. Because this was eight, nine, uh, I'm was saying eight, 85. 85, 86, so yeah. yeah, maybe started to creep in a bit. I, th- I think what certainly started to happen then was we became less obsessed with it. Yeah. And we played less. Yeah. I think after that. I don't think I ever saw Herbs again. Never that. saw him again. No, never saw Carl again either after that. No. Completely freaked to mind. Yeah. <laughs> And this is our predictions that this is the future of role playing. Thank God it wasn't, because I don't want to do it again. It, I know that um, LARPing is still a thing, isn't it? Because yeah, in, in the 90s, yeah, yeah. the whole um, vampire of the masquerade, of the masquerade. Um, was all based on that, wasn't it? Mm. And, and people do that free form stuff. And yeah. So, although we had this idea that it was going to be a massive thing. It wasn't like that, but it did go in that direction. I suppose, yeah, I suppose you could you could say, to some extent, two things kind of melded together a little bit, didn't they? So LARPing had, it, had an influence on role-playing, didn't it? Yeah. Because it's, it's certainly true, I think, that when role-playing started, you never encountered the kind of ami-drammy style, did you? That, that is, and I suppose maybe, maybe it is that the LARPing thing fed into that. And yeah. Yeah, created that kind of style of playing it, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, more dramatic. Mm, yeah. Would you do it? Laughing. But if, no. if, we, if, if somebody said to her, let me, if, right. let me give you a pitch, you've said no already. said no. You once said no to Power by the Apocalypse, uh, Hero oh, Quest, yeah. and all that story all right. and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on. imagine somebody said to us, come and do a lap, you've had a better experience. You got covered in silly string and uh, glitter and nearly killed by a baseball bat. Yes. It's not like that anymore. No. Why don't you come along and we'll show you what it's like free-forming and doing that kind of acting, like you're trapped in a room and how do you meet each other? That mm. kind of, I don't know what they do. I'd say 
Is the girl from the petrol station still there? <laughs> is she, is she, John? Has she grown up? Attractive older woman, still there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's... When, when I think back now, I do think what possessed us, because as I say, my, my experience of, of LARPing up to that point was watching the treasure trap demonstration at Games yeah. Day, which was essentially... And it's, it's no reflection on treasure trap. I'm sure people enjoy it, but it was rubbish. It was just yeah. people running at each other with swords. And yet somehow, I thought, oh, this is, maybe this is the future. But it, yeah. in a way, when I think back, it looked, looked anything like anything but the future. Yeah. But somehow, you were dragged along with the current of it that, you know, that, that was the, what people were doing. So we better try it, hadn't we, to see what it's like. Yeah. And uh, it's not very good. So I'm not doing it again. I'm quite happy. Sat on a chair with a piece of paper and some funny shaped dice. Thank you very much. Yeah, let's carry on doing that. Carry on doing that. Yeah. Right, thanks, Blythe. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. I like this from Killer. A note on idiots. Veteran killer players have a term they use for player who, emboldened by the possession of a new water gun, goes around squirting everyone he meets. That term is idiot. Yes, the only way to kill your friends with a water pistol is to be mature about it. Ovs. There's more from Jamie next time as he faces the Games Master screen and talks in more depth about his game books and career in writing. Also next time, we'll be doing our annual review of our year in gaming and the Groggy Awards. Watch out on Twitter and thegrognardfiles.com to see how you can make a vote this time. The GrogPod will always be free, but we have a Patreon to allow listeners to give us a tip each month to cover the costs and encourage us to continue. We also use the Patreon campaign to fund additional projects. Earlier this year, we opened the Grog Locker, a private space to share PDF resources with Patreon supporters. Dropping in there next month are the notes that we use for the GrogMeet OSR event. Steve Ray, Sam Vale, Rick Knott, Dr. RPG Griff, and overseen by the old Scouse roleplayer himself, Neil Benson, devised a table-spanning adventure for the deep space horror RPG, Mothership. You can read the mayhem for yourselves when that drops in the locker in December. Also appearing in there soon is the missing page from the Thieves World Supplement, in collaboration with What Would The Smart Party Do podcast. I've also set a date for the virtual GrogMeet 2020 where Patreon supporters can join GrogMeet GMs online to replay the games they presented at GrogMeet in Manchester or to join in a test run of one-shots that they've prepared for the summer convention season. Put the 17th and 18th of April 2020 in your diary. That date will also be the launch of the next GrogZine Slightly different from the previous editions, as it's going to be a social history of RPGs. Thanks to all of you who've pitched ideas so far, I'll be in touch soon. Guidelines will be on the page at grognardfiles.com, with a sort of deadline for the end of January 2020. We're very grateful to all the patrons who support us. It really does help and encourage us, so thank you. There are some new people who've joined over the past few couple of months, and... uh, 
sitting in a comfy armchair listening to this are Steve Powley, Jeremy Gilbert, Andrew McLaren and Ludwig Chabant. Putting their feet up in a fancy poof are Matt Willing, Jez, Nick West and John Power. Thank you to you all. At the sofa so good level, I like to roll on a relevant table apparently at random and award a virtual gift. This time I've gone for the killer weapons table and given them the opportunity to assassinate me. Martin Cookson, who travelled from Luxembourg to join us at Grugmeet, he's decided to increase his pledge and add a sofa to his poof. He gets to try and assassinate me with... a deadly envelope. At the very top level of the armchair adventurers, Georges Sterner has put his feet up in the room of role-playing rambling on one of those high-backed chairs with wings and a little fancy rug. He gets to kill me with... Confetti eggshells. Right, that's another grog pod in your box and one that's reawakened some nightmares for me. Adios, amigos.